Well, it's been a remarkable two and a bit days, a great time we've had together. Uh, my prayer as we've been leading up to um, this event has been that God would mark us in some ways that would really change us for life, that we wouldn't look back at these uh, two days and say, well, wasn't it amazing at Cent 2019? Wasn't, it, um, wasn't that event amazing? Can you remember what he did? But that actually, um, I don't really, I've never really cared, to be honest, whether in 60 years' time we're talking about Cent 2019, but that actually God will have done something in hearts and lives that will, will have marked us for the rest of our lives. And I believe that he's done that. And I believe he's still got some work to do as we get into God's Word together. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 12. And I'm going to read to you a couple of verses. But then, following on from Steph's encouragement on Thursday night, we're then going to go back over what the writer to this church has actually said before these verses, so that we can get the context. Let's read verses 28 and 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Everything written in this chapter in Hebrews is written to change your life. In fact, the book of Hebrews is written to change your life. That these are mighty truths that we were hearing about on Thursday. These are mighty truths that we're going to read and go through this afternoon. That when we take them to our hearts, they will change our life. Because right thinking leads to right believing, and right believing leads to right living. And so uh, I... I pray and I hope that today as we get into these truths that we are going to see change in our hearts and change in our lives. The message of this chapter, as we're going to see in a minute, is essentially this. Don't be like Esau. And you're going to come across who Esau is in a minute. We're going to explain it. But I don't know if you've ever come across these be like Bill memes. Anyone come across these? Be like Bill. This is Bill. Bill goes to Starbucks and he orders a drink. He drinks and doesn't take hundreds of selfies with it. That's because Bill knows that that's a very annoying thing to do. Be smart. Be like Bill. Okay? These are the memes that we were, you know, maybe going through about 10 years ago. There's another one here. This is Bill. Bill is on Facebook. While he's scrolling, Bill sees that a friend has posted about an app that shows you who your celebrity lookalike is. Bill isn't stupid. He doesn't take the test. Bill is smart. Be like Bill. And this final one is my favorite. This is Bill. Bill doesn't call his girlfriend Bay. Bill knows that bay is Danish for poop. <laughs> Bill is smart. Be like Bill. I checked it out. I went on Google Translate, and it's true. That's what bay means in Danish, so don't use that word. Be like Bill. This chapter is saying to us, don't be like Esau. This chapter is saying to us, don't be like Esau, and we're going to see what that's all about in just a minute. This is what we read in in verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame And is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The writer of this book, whoever it was, 
is reminding them that this is not a short sprint, that this life is not a short sprint, that it is a long distance race, that it is a long race that we are taking part in. Anyone can start out following Jesus. What matters is that we keep on running. We can't get rid of the external factors that might hinder us, but what we can do, what we can deal with is internal factors, things lurking within which are sins, wrong acting, wrong thinking, wrong speaking, and also false priorities. False priorities that aren't sin, but are weights. They are the equivalent of running the London Marathon dressed as a giant toilet roll. This lady ran the London Marathon last year dressed as a giant toilet roll. That will have hindered her. That will have hindered her in her race. It's not necessarily sinful, but it's a weight that will stop her from running the race. Some of the things that are weights in our lives are ridiculous things like a giant piece of toilet roll. Some of the things that you know that you've clung on to And it's just downright ridiculous that you're still clinging on to it. And these are weights to cast off because we are in a long distance race here. We're not on a short sprint. Some of these things are maybe better things, but maybe they're dreams that we've had for our lives. Maybe they're things that we think, I want this more than anything else. And these are things that we need to throw off because they're holding us back. And... A lady came to me yesterday afternoon and she said that she feels there's some things that God has put his finger on in these two days in some of our hearts. And you said to God in the moment, I'm going to sort that out. I'm going to deal with that. Let me encourage you, deal with it straight away. Don't delay. Delayed obedience really isn't obedience at all. Don't delay because there's going to, there's going to come a time when you're going to think, oh, I could probably keep a hold of that. I could keep a hold of that weight, but if God has put his finger on it in these two days, chuck it off. Don't delay in obeying God and his prompting. So he's reminded them that this is a race, and then he says this, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. And make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. He's going on to say here, not only is life a long distance race, but it's a race that Jesus has already 
run ahead of us in. That Jesus has run ahead of us and he kept running even when this race included agony. Even when it included the agony of the cross because he had fixed his eyes on something that brought him great joy. He had looked ahead beyond the finish line to something that really brought him great joy. That kept him running even in great agony. And in view of Jesus' persistence in agony, we're therefore not to lose heart in the face of pain, in the face of persecution. We keep suffering in perspective. God has not abandoned us. We trust that he knows what is best for us. That he's better than earthly fathers who try and do what's best for us. That's what a good earthly father does. Try to do what's best for their children. And we trust that God truly knows what is best for us. And the runners of Hebrews 11, which is this chapter, amazing chapter beforehand, where we see these heroes of the faith. These runners were great men and women. And they discovered that God used the agony of their race to open their eyes to their false priorities, to the things that they were not actually uh, getting right in the right order in their lives. That actually in hardship and difficulty, their eyes were open to some truths. So he's saying, fix your eyes on Jesus and on the love of the Father towards you. Fix your eyes on these things. Chuck off that ridiculous novelty costume. Chuck it off. Chuck off the sin. Chuck off the distraction that is weighing you down and run the race. Strengthen your feeble knees, he says. Lift up your drooping hands. When you've got drooping hands, you're despairing. Your feeble knees, you're just at the end of your energy, your end of your tether. You're despondent and you're despairing. Listen, there is no place for despair in the Christian life. There's no place for it because we've got a resurrected Messiah. So there's no place for hopelessness. There's no place to say, it's never going to change. There's no place to say, I'll never be able to do that. There's no place to say, it's, it's not going to happen. And we, there's no place for despair. I felt God highlight that to me as I was preparing. There's no place for this. Because we've got a resurrected Messiah. Try saying those things if you're one of the women who's gone to uh, sort out the, the body in, in the tomb. And then they've met the risen Jesus. Try saying those things if you're them. Try saying things of despair when you're them. And then you see Jesus risen from the dead after a brutal execution. You can't. You can't despair when you've got a resurrected Messiah. So strengthen your feeble knees. Lift up your drooping hands because we've got a resurrected King. And so we don't have a place for despair in our lives. There's no place for it because Jesus has risen from the dead. Despair should not mark us. We are resurrection people. Let's read on, shall we? And then we're going to get into the, the juicy bits of this passage. I think it's already quite juicy. Well, you haven't seen nothing yet. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. He found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Here's where we see Esau getting a bit of a hammering. In fact, he gets a bit of a hammering in the Bible uh, in a number of different places. If you don't know who Esau was, Esau was from a very good stock. His granddad was Abraham. 
His granddad was Abraham, who we heard about this morning, who God promised some really big promises to. His dad was Isaac. You know, Isaac off of going up the mountain and nearly dying, nearly getting killed by his dad. That Isaac, who was that obedient to his dad, that he trusted him even in that weird episode. This is, this is the stock that he's from. This is the stock that Esau is from. Some of you here, you have parents who may be in the workplace or in the church or in some ways, they kind of loom big in your view. They're kind of like towering over you because you think, I can never do what they've done. They've done amazing things. I mean, imagine how Esau felt. Imagine how Esau felt. His granddad was Abraham. His dad was Isaac. This guy is of good stock. And he's the oldest out of his uh, twin brother and he. He's the oldest of two boys. He literally couldn't have been from a better family and he couldn't have had a better inheritance coming his way. He could not have had a better inheritance coming his way. As the oldest son, he would inherit leadership of the family when his dad died. And what's more, he would get a double portion of the inheritance that would come when his dad passed away. His inheritance could not have been better. He would also get to play a key role in the redemption story of God's rescue story. As God had said to Abraham, through you, for your descendants, I'm going to bless the whole world. He was about to inherit that. He had an inheritance that was unbelievable. It was out of this world. He had all the right resources. He was from the right family. He had good things coming to him. But when his younger brother, Jacob, was with the family, meditating on the promises of God, Esau was more interested in hunting hunting for food, but as we also see from Genesis, he was hunting for ladies as well. Took several ladies to his bed with him. And then one evening, he had been out in the field hunting as he often did, and he returned home, and he saw that his brother is at home making some soup. Making some soup. And at that moment, at that moment, Esau could not He could not perceive anything better than that bowl of soup in the whole world. That bowl of soup to him looked incredible because he was so hungry. Sometimes something comes our way and we might have even spent two and a half days of worshipping Jesus and beholding his beauty. Sometimes something comes our way in our moment of tiredness, in our moment of hunger in some way. And that thing suddenly looks far better than everything else that God has promised us. We can be fooled into thinking that that thing is the thing that we really need more than anything in the world. And that is what happened to Esau. I don't know if you've ever done any stupid deals with your siblings. I don't know if you've ever done something where you kind of offered them something in exchange for something else and you just lost out big time. When I was a teenager, my brother who's two years older than me, we agreed that I was going to be the one who collected CDs and he was going to be the one who collected DVDs. Now, I turned out to be a right mug because when it came to us going, uh, leaving the family home and going our separate ways to university, he managed to get all of my CDs onto his iPod. Do you remember those iPods? He managed to get all, his, all of my CDs onto his iPod, and yet I had no facility by which I could get his DVDs and use them for myself. So I was a mug. I lost out big time. Maybe you've made stupid deals with your siblings when you're younger. Maybe you swapped something in order that you, you just wanted something so badly that you gave away something that was far more valuable. Well, 
This is what Esau did. None of you actually compared to Esau in how stupid that you've probably been in making some deals with your siblings. Esau was so hungry, he comes back, he sees dinner getting cooked, and Jacob says, what are you going to give it? What are you going to give me for that bowl of soup? What are you going to give me for that bowl of soup? Because he's so hungry, Esau. He just wants that bowl of soup more than anything else. And Jacob says, do you fancy giving me your birthright? Do you fancy giving me your birthright? And Esau sold the incredible birthright to his brother because he was hungry. Because he wanted a bowl of soup. He sold his birthright to his brother. He literally sold his rights as the firstborn son of Isaac for a bowl of soup. The Isaac who had such a heritage. The Isaac who was so obedient that he would even go up a mountain and almost be killed. He sold his rights as the firstborn son of Isaac for a bowl of soup. In the Old Testament, in 30 different places, God introduces himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Hi, I'm God. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It should have been, hi, I'm God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. And yet, because this bowl of soup loomed large in Esau's view, all he wanted, he thought at that time, all he needed at that time was a bowl of soup. He sold his birthright. That's why this passage is saying, don't be like Esau, because you've inherited something so great. Don't throw it away. Don't throw it away. Imagine the honor that was coming his way. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. Esau's actions were foolish. He hadn't really delighted in the covenant of God. He hadn't delighted in the inheritance that was his. In fact, he despised his inheritance. And this passage is saying, don't be like Esau. Don't despise the great inheritance that is now yours in Christ. Realize it for what it is. Grasp a hold of the inheritance that is yours in Christ. Don't trade it in for a bowl of soup. Don't trade it in. As we meditate on this great inheritance, which is what we're going to do as we go through the rest of this passage, we will not find other things more attractive. As we keep it in our minds, this inheritance that we have been given We will not find other things attractive. We will not be like Esau, who said, no deal, give me the meal. No deal. You can have the inheritance of God. I don't want it. I want a meal. We won't be like him as we treasure the inheritance that is on offer to us in Christ. So what is this inheritance? It's the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of God. Not some time in the future, but the kingdom of God now which we're going to experience and enjoy more of and more of and more of as our life goes on and into eternity. And there's two elements of this inheritance that I want to highlight to you before we close. Firstly is this. It is a kingdom of grace. It is a kingdom of grace. Listen to this in verse 18. You have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg them, beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. This is the beginning of a contrast here that the writer makes between Mount Sinai, where Moses and the people of Israel met God, and Mount Zion. Now, let's not get 
too caught up in the whole talk of mountains here. This is a contrast between the old covenant, the way in which God would relate to his people before Jesus, and the new covenant that we are finding ourselves in. This is an incredible contrast. Under the old covenant, God's holiness and majesty were emphasized by those natural signs which accompanied his presence. So we've got blazing fire, we've got darkness and gloom, we've got the piercing blast of heavenly trumpets. Some of you are trumpet players here. Listen, trumpets are piercing, aren't they? They cut through. This is what accompanied God's presence. This is, this is emphasizing the infinite distance between God and man. That's what was going on there, that he's not like us. And the, the, when they heard the voice of God, the people of Israel said to Moses, go and speak to him for us. We can't bear to hear this voice because if we hear it anymore, we're going to die. Go and speak to him for us. We don't want to hear it. This is how contrasting it was. This is an amazing God. His divine presence, unapproachable. The Hebrew people were instructed to keep away. Even if a straying animal managed to just go looking for food or something, it touched a mountain, it was going to have to die. Those poor goats. Think about the goats that are wandering around, looking for some food, minding their own business, and they get their little hooves on the mountain, and it's got to die because it's touched the mountain of the Lord. This is how holy our God is. And then it's contrasted with the new way, the new covenant, where to meet with God and to go into his presence is to really live. It's to really live. We go to meet with God now, we find there's actually a living priest interceding for us. We've arrived now not at the foot of an unapproachable earthly mountain, but within the gates of a gloriously accessible and eternal city. You have come to Mount Zion, this is what it says in verse 22, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in feastal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. When you came to faith, you didn't have to go to a mountain. I hope that no one told you you had to go to a mountain. If you did go to a mountain, you were fooled. You didn't have to go to a mountain. You came to Jesus. Christianity has no geographic center. Through faith in Jesus, we've come to a heavenly city. We've come to a heavenly assembly. That great cloud of witnesses that we read about in Hebrews 11. We see these heroes of faith. We come to a divine judge. We come to a mediator called Jesus, whose blood shed for us is the main voice that we now hear. Not a voice that makes us go, just get it away from me, I'm going to die. Go and speak to him on our behalf, Moses. No, there's a voice that speaks for us now, the mediator Jesus, whose blood speaks for us that we are forgiven, whose blood speaks for us that we are welcome, whose blood speaks for us that we are beckoned to God. That's the voice that we now hear. That's the contrast. We've come into a kingdom of grace. And we're called to the assembly of the firstborn. Now, if you, don't, if you hadn't done the homework on this and seeing that there's this whole deal about the firstborn here, that they get this important inheritance, then you wouldn't understand this. Listen to this. 
you are now treated as firstborn sons in the family of God. Because you are in Christ. And all that he deserves, all that honor that he deserves because of his perfect obedience to the Father has now been pinned to your chest. You are treated as the firstborn sons. You're the assembly of the firstborn. Jesus is the firstborn who inherits what the Father has promised him. And now we get in on the inheritance that Jesus alone deserves. Because he took our place. He took our sin and our shame and we get given his sonship. We get given a place of honor in the family of God. So this is a kingdom of grace. We've been lavished with grace. We've been lavished with unmerited favor. We've been brought into a new and far, far superior covenant. This is a kingdom of grace. And the second element of this kingdom that we're inheriting that I want to highlight is that it's this, an unshakable kingdom. It has an unshakable nature. Let's read on, shall we? This last few verses in this chapter. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful that we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Wow. So we now see it in some context. One of the things that our generation is known for is that we're probably not going to be able to buy houses very easily. Okay, many of you may not own homes ever. You may not own homes ever. Sorry to be the bringer of bad news, but that may be true for you. Because there's an economic situation. Some of us live in expensive places. I think it's, it's very expensive to live in some of the cities that we're from. And One thing that we're kind of holding out for is that one day we may receive an inheritance. One day, we we don't sort of long for it in that we're not wishing our, our family members to die, but we are thinking about the fact that one day we may come into an inheritance of finances or property. One day we may be able to own a house for ourselves. We may be able to have a home that we can call ours. But the problem with this prospect of inheritance one day is that there are a whole load of factors at play that may mean that we don't actually receive that inheritance. Sorry to make you doubly depressed if you're already thinking, I'm not ever going to be able to own a home. There are factors at play that may mean that you never receive that inheritance. A whole load of things that may affect whether we our families might need the money for other things. We have no idea what might, be ha- might happen between then and now. Financial difficulty could befall our family. The aging population may mean that some of you are in your 60s before you end up owning a house for yourself. Our earthly inheritance is very, very uncertain. It's very, very uncertain. We don't know what we're going to receive. We have no idea. We may not actually get it. 
But the amazing news that we've just read is this, that in Christ we have already inherited something that cannot be shaken. We've already inherited something. In a shaking world, in a world that is shaking constantly, we've already inherited something that cannot be shaken. In a world where there is political uncertainty. I haven't lived for very long, but in the time that I've lived, I've not seen political uncertainty in this country quite like it. We have a parliament that cannot agree on anything at the moment. There is political uncertainty. Are we ever going to leave the European Union or are we going to stay? What do we want to do? We don't know. There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's kind of a shaking, right? There's kind of a shaking. The world is shaking. The changing tides of morality. The opposition is beginning to increase towards those who want to make faithful Christian witness. We don't know the whole story of this guy, but in London, six, eight weeks ago, proclaiming the Bible, probably not doing it in a very wise way, I would imagine, from what I saw of a video, but for no apparent reason, he's arrested for proclaiming truths from the Bible. So we know that there is uncertainty ahead of us. There is shakiness ahead of us. The elements are unstable. We, are, we have no idea what's going on with the climate. Unsteady unstable. We've seen natural disasters, floods, hurricanes, earthquakes going on. Our health and the health of those around us, unsteady, unstable. It's shaking. There is uncertainty. And yet, this is the great joy of being a Christian. It doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter what's going on around you. It doesn't matter whether you live in a place of great wealth like the UK or Sweden or Germany, wherever you're from. It doesn't matter if you live in a really wealthy place or in a poor place. You have a joy and you have have something of certainty that cannot be taken away from you. That cannot be shaken. This doesn't mean that we avoid the decay and the calamities of this world. It doesn't mean that we aren't affected by political and financial instability. It doesn't mean that we're not going to ever know suffering. But we are receiving something that cannot be shaken. We're receiving something that, that cannot be taken away from us. It means that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is a certainty. That is a deep and abiding certainty that we can know in our lives, whether we live or we die, we are the Lord's. We belong to Him. We're His. What an inheritance. What an inheritance. Don't be like Esau. Don't be like Esau. Don't trade it in. Don't trade it in for some cheap meal. You'll be tested in the years to come. You'll be tested, no doubt, even this week. You'll be tested. You'll be tested in some way. You'll have times when you're tired and low this week. And that cheap meal will seem to you like the thing that you need most right now. You'll think, there's nothing else in the world that I could need more right now than this meal. Whatever it might be, you fill in the blanks. That meal of affirmation from people that you just know, I can't be myself around them, but I just crave their affirmation more than anything else. And all I want to do is please them. You're going to be tested this week. That meal of sexual pleasure... You think, I need this. 
I need this, even though it's, I know it's not honoring to God, but I need it. There'll be that offered to you this week. It'll be offered to you in the weeks to come. Is this passage saying that you can lose this inheritance, that you could somehow throw away your salvation? Listen, I don't think this passage calls us to debate theology. I think this passage calls us to not be like Esau. That we're not going to get caught up in, well, what could happen? What could... No, it calls us not to be like Esau. It calls us to treasure, to be grateful that we have an inheritance. To delight in the inheritance that God has given us. This kingdom of grace, this unshakable kingdom. And don't be like Esau. Don't be like him. I don't know about you, but knowing that I have this inheritance, that in some ways I'm already experiencing, this fills me with confidence. It fills me with great confidence. To know that what we have is unshakable, to know that it, cannot, it can never be torn down. This kingdom can never be defeated. It gives me great confidence. It really does. We should be those who are confident in the light of the fact that we have, an in, we have inherited a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We should be the most confident people on the planet. We should be the most humble because it was never of our doing. It was never anything to do with us. But we should be the most confident as well. We should be the most confident because we inherit something that is unshakable. So what could this confidence, what should this confidence lead us to? Well, firstly, we should be confident in our God and we should reckon on his favor with us. Secondly, we should be confident in our message. So let's look at those very briefly. We should be confident in our God. This God who we've just read, is a consuming fire. That means that things that get in his way just get consumed. They cease to be. If you're sinful in God's presence, you get consumed. He's a consuming fire. The God whom the people of Israel begged Moses to go and speak to on their behalf. This God whose holiness would strike dead that poor, hungry mountain goat. This God who's so majestic, who's enthroned in the midst of innumerable angels. These are not angels who are chubby babies on Christmas cards. These are fierce beings that you would run away from if you saw one. Or you would fall to the ground if you saw one. These are surrounding the throne of God. The God who will shake the heavens and the earth one more time. This God is for us. This God is for us. This God is for you. He's for you. This God is for you. This same God. His word says it. If our God is for us, who can be against us? That question does not and should not make you want to list all of the possible things that could be against you. This is a rhetorical question that is designed to strengthen us, that's designed to fortify us. Because no matter what, how long you spent listing things, none of them can stand up against God because he's consuming fire. And that God is for us. That God is for you. So I want to urge you, as we go from here in a little while, to align your minds with the truth that this God of great majesty and of great power is for you. That he's for you individually. He's for you in your church. He's for us as a generation. He's for us. This God, he is 
victorious. We need to be transformed. We need to be transformed in our minds. We need to be transformed in our thinking. This God is for us. He's going to have a glorious church, as we heard from Morris today. He's going to have a glorious bride. The mountain of the Lord will be raised up as higher than all of the other mountains on the earth. The nations of the world will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. I've never been to a sea that's not covered in water. That's the thing about seas, they're covered in water, and yet the nations of the world will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. It's a dead certainty. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. The outlook is good. Millions will accept Jesus Christ as Lord. Millions of people will come before him and bow the knee before him in this life. I am confident of this because God is for us. Because we are under his favour. We're under the favour of God. That's a game changer, isn't it? That is a game changer. That when we realise this God, who the goats couldn't go near because they're going to get killed, that God is for us. There's no one else who a goat can walk up to and get killed just because they're in his presence. There's no one else. There's nothing else. No one as mighty as our God, and he is for us. And we can reckon on his favor. It's not always going to be easy. There's going to be battles ahead. There's going to be battles ahead for you this week. There's going to be battles ahead for you in the weeks and months to come. But this this God is for us, and we can reckon on his favor. I'm speaking to mostly British people here. And do you know what? British people are some of the most pessimistic people in the world. In fact, there has been a survey done, and of all the nations in the world, Britain ranks as the third most pessimistic, after only the French and the Italians. (laughs) I'm not going to make any comments on that, because there's people of those nations in this room. But this is depressing, isn't it? That we're so pessimistic as Brits. Ricky Gervais, who you didn't expect I'd be quoting from today, he said this quite insightful comment about the difference between British people and Americans. He said, Americans applaud ambition and they openly reward success. Brits are more comfortable with life's losers. We embrace the underdog until it's no longer the underdog. And then when they succeed, we don't like them anymore. (laughs) Americans say, have a nice day, whether they mean it or not. Brits are terrified to say this. We tell ourselves it's because we don't want to sound insincere, but I think it's because we don't want to celebrate anything too soon. (laughs) For the Brit, failure and disappointment lurk around every corner. This is due to our upbringing. Americans are brought up to believe that they can be the next president of the United States. Brits are told it will never happen for you. I love being British, but when it comes to the outlook on the future... I don't want to have a typically British mindset. I want to have my mindset shaped by this truth that we're in. That God, the consuming fire, is with us and he's for us. And we can reckon on his favor with us. I'm reckoning on God's presence with us. I'm confident of kingdom advance. I'm confident of it. I'm confident of it in Ipswich. I'm confident of it in east, in the east of England. I'm confident of it in Liverpool, where some of you will go in the years to come. I'm confident of it in the nations of Europe. I'm confident of it in continents that we haven't even profiled this weekend, because God is with us. I'm confident of kingdom advance. He's our provider. He's our protector. And when you know that, when you know that he's with you, when you know that he's for you, you will take some risks. 
My favorite story in the Bible is in 1 Samuel chapter 14, where Jonathan, who's the king's son, he's with his armor bearer, and the people of Israel are taking a right royal kicking. And the people of Israel are in hiding, and things are not looking good. And Jonathan has a sword, or rather his armor bearer probably has a sword, because that's what armor bearers do. And he sees 20 Philistines up a big hill, like a rocky, craggy hill. And he says, let's go over there and take those guys out. And he has one sword and one man. The other guy doesn't have a sword for himself. And they go up the hill and they defeat these 20 Philistine guys. They take them out. But on the way, they're climbing up this hill. At any point, they could have turned back because these Philistines are saying... They say this, in the, it says it in the ESV, they say, come on up here, we've got something to show you, or we'll show you something. Now what they're not saying is, we've got an amazing model railway, you need to come and see it. <laughs> they're saying, come on up here and we're going to end you. You are going to be dead. We're going to completely show, we're going to show you that we are far superior to you. And Jonathan and his armor bearer, they make their way up this slippery, craggy rock and they take these 20 guys out, job done. What was going through Jonathan's mind? What on earth led him to do such a thing? What led him to take such a risk? Well, he says to his armor bearer, let's go on up over to those uncircumcised men. And let's see if God will give us the victory. Now, what is that all about? Did he think by the fact that he was circumcised that he had some sort of superpower? No, no. Did he think that he and his armor bearer were some kind of ninjas that could take up 20 guys? No. The clue is, though, in the word uncircumcised. Because he knew that he was in God's favored people. He knew that he was part of God's people. And they were uncircumcised, but they were not part of God's people. And so he knew that the favor of God rested upon him. And that he could go up there in faith that the God of Israel would come through for them. Listen, we are part of God's favoured people. This is a game changer. We're part of the favoured ones of God. By faith in Jesus. And so this leads us to take risks. It leads us to lay things behind. It leads us to lay things down in order to go after what God has said to us. Because we're part of his people We are in the favor of God. We've been brought into a kingdom that cannot be shaken, with a king who cannot be dethroned. And that truth changes us. Can I urge you, I use this phrase sometimes, let's allow our minds to soak in the bath of God's sovereign rule and reign. Let's allow our minds to soak in those baths. You see it in the scriptures again and again and again. God just declaring who he is. And we can treat ourselves to a bath every now and again. Most baths I'm way too big for. We can treat ourselves this kind of relaxing, kind of let's get rid of everything in my mind kind of moment. What we need though is to soak our minds in the bath of God's sovereignty. To remind ourselves he is in charge. To say, God, you are the unshakable one. That you are the one who cannot be dethroned. And it's when we are camped out in that truth, when we're living in that truth, when we're bathing our minds in that truth, that we will say, 
I can take risks for the glory of God. I can go and do what God's calling me to do and trust that his favor is going to be with me. That I can lay behind even the riches of this world because I've got an inheritance that's far better. It's far, far better. And maybe even lay down the dream of owning a home because I want to give my money away. As some people in this room have even said, I'm going to lay down this middle class dream in order to pursue something that God's calling me to do. That won't be for all of us, but for some of you it will look like that. There'll be some things that we lay down in the light of the fact that this kingdom is not to be shaken. That we're not, we're not requiring kind of financial security. Or we're not requiring some kind of approval from people who are looking on, our family members. No, we've got something that's unshakable. So we're confident in our God. We're confident in our message. Very, very last thing. We're confident in the message that we take to people. What people in the world need more than anything else is something that is unshakable. That's what friends and family that we know and love who don't know Jesus are doing. They're reaching out their hands and trying to grasp hold of things that are unshakable. Whether that's affirmation from loved ones, whether it's financial security, whether it's climbing up some kind of ladder in order to get people to respect us. Trying to grasp hold of something that they want to be unshakable. But the reality is, at a moment's notice, those things can be ripped away. And we see that they are not, they're not things for us to place our hope in. What our friends and our family need more than anything else, more than some kind of intellectually palatable belief system, more than just a fresh start, what people need more than anything else is a saviour king who has a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That's what people need. So this unshakable kingdom that we're inheriting is actually the very thing that we speak of. It's the very thing that we speak of. The disciples went around proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. It's not simply believe in Jesus. It's much, much more than that. Yes, believe in Jesus. It's not just receive forgiveness for your sins. Yes, it's that, but it's much, much more than that. It's Believe in Jesus, it's receive forgiveness for your sins and enter into a kingdom with a king on the throne who's a good king, who's a king who can be trusted, who's a king who can never be dethroned, who's a king who uh, who cannot be shaken, who's a king who's for you. That's, That's the message that we proclaim. That's the message we proclaim. In uncertainty, and turbulence, we are holding forth a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It cannot be shaken. And so if there's one thing that I want you to do in these weeks and months, it's to come, as we go from here, is to, to so soak your mind in the truths of God's word, in the truth of who he is, and of the truth of who you are now in him. Firstborn sons. And as you, as you soak your minds in these truths, to take risks for him, to reckon on his favor. Have those moments when you're thinking, okay, God's prompting me to go and pray for that person. What if it all goes wrong? What if they start mocking me? Or what's going to happen? We can be like Jonathan and his armor bearer who say, I'm in the favored people of God. God is with me. I can go because I can reckon on him coming through for me.
We take a bath in the truth of who God is. He's far greater than anything else on offer. His kingdom is far greater than anything else that will be offered to us. And it will be offered to you. It will be offered to you this week. Our God is a God who is a consuming fire. So let us worship him with reverence and awe. Let's pray, shall we? Father, right across this room now, I ask you that you would come and bring this reality home to our hearts and minds. That you're a consuming fire. That you're majestic. That no one can stand against you. Ultimately, Lord, you are victorious. And you will never be dethroned. Why don't you say that to God? No one will ever rob you of your throne. Just say it to him. Jesus, no one will ever rob you of your throne. There is no hint of danger that you will be dethroned. We are sure and certain of this one thing. Jesus Christ, you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You are the King over all earthly power. Far above it, Lord. And you're the Lord of lords. You're our master. Lord, we don't need to look to the approval of others because your approval counts. Everything else, all other approval is is shakeable. It can be taken away at a moment's notice. But we trust that in Christ, we have now been given approval and honor that was never about what we deserved. It's about what Jesus deserves. And he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. <laughs> Lord, and you look upon us and you love us as you love your son. I thank you for that, Father. We just want to worship you now. We want to pour out our praise to you, sovereign one. We love you, Lord.